Welcome to But Jesus Drank Wine and other stories that kept us stuck. I'm Mead. And I'm Christy. In this podcast, we'll explore the stories that kept us, well, stuck, wanting to drink and not wanting to drink all at the same time. Join us as we show you that freedom from alcohol does not have to mean a life sentence of misery and missing out, but actually means living an authentic life full of peace, joy, and purpose. Hi, guys. Hi, gals. How are you? Hello. Hi. Oh, my gosh. So excited for today. Y'all. This is a good one. This is a good we, one. We cannot wait for you to meet our good friends, fellow senior This Naked Mind coach and functional nutritionist, Terry Patterson. Uh, she is here with us today. First of all, can I say that we've coached in several groups together? We've led people through these like year long group coaching programs. And whenever they're done, and then I don't get to hear from you on a regular basis, Terry, like I have withdrawal from your laugh. Your laugh <laughs> is my most favorite thing in the entire world. Anybody else out there that knows Terry, I'm sure is agreeing with me right now. But so I'm excited to get that laugh here today and also to, you know, get into this hot topic of sugar and why am I craving sugar when I'm, you know, starting out alcohol free and what does that, what does that look like? So we're excited to have you. Thanks for being here. Well, thanks for the offer to come and chat with two of my favorite ladies. And yes, it is really fun to get to coach together in these programs. And we, in fact, the three of us are going to be part of a new little group where we're going to do less solopreneur and more collaboration and just inner Secting with each other because part of the beauty of coaching is connection and that is one of the things that is so powerful in any kind of change you're trying to make so whether we're talking about alcohol free living or sugar connection and accountability and community and people who are also saying me too, sharing best practices is such a big part of it. So I love that you two are doing a podcast together. Of course, I have a solo podcast, but any way we do it, having this conversation is really fun to do collaboratively. So thank you again for inviting me. Yay. Well, let's just dive right in. I am hosting a hosting. Is that the right word? I'm doing a dry January group of gals right now who are so, so awesome. Shout out to my dry Jan girls. And one of the, the, the topics that keeps coming up in our group WhatsApp, and actually it's pretty much come up with, I feel like every client, right? Is so what do I do about these sugar cravings? How can I prevent them? Are they going to last forever? And and why are they happening? All of that good stuff. I know, Terry, you and I have talked about this before on my Instagram, but I would love for you to just give your amazing knowledge on all of that. And yeah, tell us all the things about sugar. Sure. Well, it's really interesting. Uh, there's a couple of different things happening. There is this dopamine response that we have. And then there are the same ways we reach for sugar where we used to reach for alcohol, which comes to those sort of unmet needs. And so we can also, we can talk about those two things. And then I think, you know, is it going to last forever is also a really interesting part of the conversation. So let me just start by saying our body needs sugar. So when we think about glucose, that is that quick source of energy. So our body is designed to crave glucose because if we think back to our ancestors and that fight or flight response was for safety, we had to have a way to get all of the energy that we needed 
in the split second to run for safety, basically. Like this is, you know, out on the plains, you're hunting buffalo and they're charging you and you got to get the heck out of the way. <laughs> and so when we think about sugar, we sometimes think like, oh, you know, it's bad that I crave sugar or that I want sugar or that I have sugar in my diet. And no, we are biologically wired to use sugar for that really quick energy. The problem comes when we have our modern diet where we have made sugar a part of almost every food. And so what happens, one of the things that happens is our palate just gets hijacked. If you notice this in your own you know, world, and I used to work in a high school, so one example was you'd see kids come walking in with a you know, a chocolate frappuccino. Do they even make those? Maybe they're caramel. And then no, they, they totally still make them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then a bag of hot flaming Cheetos. And you think, how are they eating that for breakfast? But <laughs> because their palate is so in tune to things that are hyper sweet, hyper salty, hyper sugary, hyper sour, and we lose our natural palate. And so anything to register that even tastes sweet, now we need something super sweet. So we've taken this natural natural mechanism of glucose is appealing because we might need it for energy and we've turned it into something that is wildly different than the intention behind having energy. You do not need a chocolate frappuccino for with whipped cream, extra whip. <laughs> this was my son. This is how I know. Um, when he was, you know, a preteen, you do not need that in order to get energy. In fact, what it will do is it will create so much excess blood sugar that then you will crash. You will have less energy. So I think that's a good place to start is that sugar is not the enemy. And we're never going to completely take sugar out of our diet. And I say that as somebody who does teach a curriculum to take a break from sugar. But we do it with the intention of one, resetting our palate, two, taking out something that is, you know, in processed food. So if we're going to reduce sugar, we've got to get away from processed food and back to what we as nutritionists would call nutrient-dense whole food. So that is things without a label. That is things that are naturally sweet. One of the great experiments you can do at home that's really simple. Take a tart green apple, like a Gravenstein is a good apple we have here in the United States. I don't know about over in the UK, but if you think of a tart green apple, it's not very sweet, right? And if you taste that and think, oh, it's really sour, like I don't, oh, this is almost bitter. And then I take, we do this in my, in my sugar class. And when we reduce sugar, or we take out sugar for just a period of time, short period of time, they will eat that green apple at the end of that time. And they'll be like, oh, it's sweet. It's delicious. I can now taste the natural sugar in food. So interesting. Yeah. And so the other thing to notice too, is that when we have artificial sweeteners, they can taste up to 1,200 times sweeter than the sugar that's in that apple. And this is why sugar gets all wrapped up into this craving, this desire, this it doesn't taste sweet unless I eat the cake with the whipped cream. You know, it's really interesting how much our palate has changed through just the, you know, food culture that we live in and, you know, the money that they make. And they actually interviewed people that worked with, you know, creating new foods and creating a craving and a desire for these new foods. And they have something called a bliss point. And it's actually the right amount of salt, 
fat and sugar. And then you just crave it, crave it, crave it, crave it. So some of this is natural and some of this is very unnatural based on how our society creates food and how we use food and the type of processed foods that many of us eat. So interesting. So, so interesting. It's kind of like when you I mean, like just taking it back to alcohol for a second, when you stop, when you swear that you love the taste of a cold glass of white wine, but then you haven't had it in a while and then you go back to it. So many of my clients do that. They're like, I swore I love champagne. I swore I love cold white wine. And then they'll take a three, four month break, go back and they're like, oh, it's horrible. <laughs> right? Because there's their, how do you say their palate resets basically, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because That's, alcohol really doesn't taste good in the beginning, although people will develop a taste yeah. for it, just like you could develop a taste for Flaming Hot Cheetos, apparently. <laughs> and that's an extreme example, right? But, you know, the other mechanism that's important to notice when we look at this connection with alcohol and sugar is we see, like you said, Christy, your dry January group, you know, we remove alcohol and then suddenly we're looking around for sugar and we find ourselves eating more sugar or we find ourselves craving something and that becomes sugar. So we want to talk for a moment about dopamine. So dopamine is this wanting molecule. It's this, it's this knowing molecule. It's this neurotransmitter that, you know, we can spike our dopamine when we have something that gives us this intense rush of pleasure. So that can happen with drugs, that can happen with alcohol. Well, alcohol is a drug, but in this case, talking about other drugs and alcohol, and then also with sugar. So if we think about the mechanism of dopamine, when we have this artificial rush of dopamine in our brain, one of the things that's fascinating is it, our body is super resourceful. So this, in, you know, my entire experience around learning about nutrition and alcohol, I continually come back to this idea that the human body is fascinating. It is this complex chemistry lab going on. And so when we look at dopamine, if we are constantly artificially stimulating this dopamine molecule, artificially stimulating it again and again and again through, let's say, alcohol, then we remove the, or I'm sorry, let's, if we're doing that, what happens is our dopamine receptors just kind of take a break. The body says, well, I don't need to have these dopamine receptors on high alert because this is happening all the time. I don't need to have these extra resources. So they become, they turn off, they become dull, they become less sensitive. So it takes more alcohol to create this same sense of rush. And this is tolerance, right? So when we think about it, we stop drinking alcohol and then our dopamine receptors have to reset. They have to get back to baseline where simple things bring in pleasure and we are starting to reset. So there's sort of this deficit in the beginning. The dopamine receptors are kind of dull and we're not drinking the alcohol. And so there's this little bit of this deficit well, what happens is there's sugar in our diet, just naturally, even if you eat an apple, right? So we have a little bit of sugar and our brain goes, oh, I remember that feeling, do more of that. And so now we have this dynamic where we're like, oh, brain says, oh yeah, do that again. I want that, that feels good. And then the receptors are like, oh yeah, this all makes sense again. Don't need to turn the receptors on, no longer in deficit because there's sugar coming in. And so we have this sort of chemical place where 
we've now had this dynamic of sugar in, and people often want to say that, well, there's sugar in alcohol and then this is why we're craving sugar. But that's not exactly how it works because I want to say that for most of us and certainly probably the three of us here, by the time I was over drinking, I was drinking plain vodka, vodka and ice. Like there's not sugar in that really, you know? And so it's not like I was drinking six pina coladas and I was, you know, addicted to the cream. No, it was this dopamine response and the way that my body was getting this artificial hit. And so when we eat that sugar, the body is going to have that moment of knowing. And so this is where it becomes important to recognize what's happening chemically. And then to say like, okay, well, my body needs to reset so that the dopamine receptors are sensitive again. And so having some sugar is going to be okay, but when we overdo it with sugar, we're going to get caught in that same cycle, similar to what we did with alcohol, as far as dopamine is concerned. Yeah, that is so good. So, so good. Yeah. So when we're beating ourselves up for, for having yeah. sugar, it's like, oh, well, of course. So let's stop judging ourselves and just know, use this knowledge to create a different, a slightly different dynamic and just being aware of it. I remember when I stopped drinking, this was before I went to nutrition school. So I was drinking and then I almost immediately went to nutrition school when I stopped. I was eating more sugar when I first stopped drinking. And I told myself, because I was what I would call, my, uh, call a wellness enthusiast, so I knew a little bit about nutrition, but I wasn't formally trained. I told myself, okay, I am going to eat a little bit of extra sugar for now, but I'm going to do it for a limited time. And so the question that you had, Christy, in the beginning about forever, well, that depends. Yeah. But, but, and tell me if I'm wrong, I found that my like craving for sugar also did dissipate over time. Like I remember when it was like, I would have a bowl of ice cream for a while there in the evenings. And when I was, you know, on vacation with a big group of drinkers, when it was cocktail hour and I would hit the ice with Ben and Jerry's guy. So, but it, it did fade. And so was that just because I knew I wanted to kind of get it under control or is that, did that naturally happen? Yeah, well, I think if we are constantly spiking our blood sugar and spiking our dopamine, we can stay in that cycle for as long as we do that. So here's the other part that really is interesting. And this is kind of the mindset piece. And this really comes down to the, you know, how do we prevent ourselves, you know, eating all the sugar. And so this is, I do this with people around food. It's, it's not just sugar, but when we think about when we eat in particularly in America, and I know while you are American, Christy, you now live in the UK, it may be slightly different there, but we have this reputation of being one of the most overfed and undernourished nations in the world. So we eat whether we're hungry or not. Many, many of my clients come to me and say, I'm, I don't even know if I can identify what hungry feels like. And so what does that tell us? It tells us that it's, we're not relying on a biological response of being hungry. We've got all these other cues that are creating why we're eating. And when it comes to sugar, we want to look at our friend alcohol or our foe alcohol and say, what is similar? And what is similar is that same dynamic of why we were drinking due to some of those underlying 
needs, maybe unmet needs, and why we're eating. So when we look at our alcohol journey, we often see, you know, well, it reduces stress, or I'm bored, or I'm lonely, or I'm trying to distract myself, or I deserve it, or I'm celebrating. All of those same factors can come into our relationship with sugar or food. So that's a really important place to check in. Yeah. yeah. That's you know, so good. Yeah. I know we talk a lot about the, you know, the, the disconnection to discomfort that so many of us are caught in this. I mean, we live in this world where it's easy to be distracted. We're easily distractible with all the things. And we have all of these things that provide immediate gratification. And so a lot of us have become disconnected from even noticing, like you were talking about the people that are like, I can't even tell you what hunger, f I don't, I don't know. I, I don't even know how to connect to that. I was for sure somebody at the beginning of my freedom from alcohol journey that like, I couldn't, I couldn't even locate my breath in my body. I was so disconnected from bodily sensations and the understanding that bodily sensations are our greatest clues to what we need. And, and so it's, it's just fascinating to me, the the crossover, you know, no matter what the thing is, but anything that's going to artificially stimulate or release dopamine is going to cause this habit loop cycle where we can get trapped by that. I know that when I started my journey and I was free from alcohol, I didn't find that I was really like craving sugar, but I was definitely, I was like, I didn't used to drink. If I had wine, I was not going to have dessert too. I would not take both calories. So that was like a one of those strict rules that I had. Well, I'm going to drink my calories. So when I found freedom from alcohol, I was like, ooh, I get to have dessert now. And so I was having dessert regularly, giving myself permission for that, which is great. And I have no regrets. But I did also wonder, like, why am I not losing the, like, the 10 pounds that, you know, I could have lost from, you know, not drinking anymore. But, but it's interesting how getting into that cycle, I can see, looking back, that, you know, once you kind of give that opening, like we do with alcohol, we give it this like little benign opening in our lives, how quickly it can, can become this cycle that we get caught in and then go, oh, like not only can I not figure out, you know, that I'm doing this as a result of being uncomfortable or needing something, but now I'm just, you know, I'm so far along the path of it and I don't know how to untangle it. So, so many, so many fascinating things and all of that for sure. Yeah, it's really, it's really important to look at what do I need right now? And we forget to ask ourselves that when we're in a moment of craving or we're just, like you said, disconnected from our body. And so what I like to help people do is just, you know, if you find yourself just mindlessly eating or grazing or wandering in the kitchen thinking, nothing really sounds good. You know, it's really powerful to just say, well, gosh, let's just get grounded and centered for a moment and ask, what do I really need right now? Oh, I just bored. I don't, I'm not hungry. You know, oh, I know I have a hard conversation coming up with my mom later tonight. And so I'm looking for a distraction. I'm thinking that if I eat something, I'll, I'll fill that hole, that, that the nervousness that's going on. And so it's really powerful to just take a step back and ask. And one of the things we can look at is we can drop into that behavior. 
the grazing, the going to the kitchen four or five times, the, and that looks a little different than a habit. And so when we find ourselves, you know, eating and thinking, did I even notice what I ate? These types of behaviors are a great way to check in and say, just like we do with alcohol, what is my thought and emotion going on here? And then that can help us really look at what I really need. You know, if you are, if you have something coming up that you're dreading and you're suddenly, the behavior is, oh, I'm eating mindlessly. My third handful of nuts and I don't remember, where did I set the bowl of nuts? Like, okay, clue, <laughs> I'm not really hungry. So what am I using food for? Yeah, so good. I was thinking about this the other day about like which one's a trickier kind of thing to find freedom from. Is it alcohol or sugar? And I think that like for me, I don't know. I think sugar might be the more tricky one. And I'm this is my question, Terry. So I was thinking this the other day, like everything that you just said is so, so obviously true. But I think with alcohol, because we have the after effects that we can point to like, okay, is this helping my anxiety? No, it's actually giving me anxiety and making me more of an anxious person because of cortisol and all that good stuff. Like we know that we're going to have a hangover. We're we know we're going to feel awful the next day. And so I was thinking to myself, is sugar harder? Because you don't really, we don't think about actually the way that sugar makes us feel. And so I, I don't even know if I told you this, me, I'm doing sugar with caffeine. So I'm, I'm really looking at this right now. I know I'm nuts. So what I have, I've noticed, I have noticed now, I have been able to see the difference in when I'm not eating sugar and, and eating sugar and the difference in my blood sugar is bananas. I have so much more energy when I'm not eating sugar. I like my, the stomach, I'm, I'm not going to go into my whole health history because that's boring, but you know what I mean? So do you think, I guess my two part question, is it harder because we don't have anything to point to like a hangover and what, what do you, what do you tell clients about how sugar really does make you feel? Because I, I didn't know, I didn't feel it until I really focused it mm. on it. Yeah. So, so th that's a great example and a great question. And so I will challenge, first of all, the fact that we don't really have the same effects from sugar, because I think that's not true. Okay. So I we, can I love have it. A, we can have a food coma, you know, we can have sugar that can impact our, the way we feel. It creates a lot of the same dynamics that alcohol does. We get inflammation in the gut. We erode our immune system. We spike our cortisol and adrenaline because that's part of blood sugar regulation. If you have a constantly imbalanced blood sugar, you're going to fire up the adrenals and bring in some of that cortisol to help offset blood sugar regulation. So all of those impacts are at work. I will say though, what you're saying there, Christy, is yes, I think some in many ways sugar is harder because we can take alcohol 100% out of our world. Like the three of us don't drink alcohol anymore. It, we don't have to navigate it. But our relationship with food and how we use food and how much sugar we eat is always going to be part of surviving as a human. We have to eat to survive. So that is always going to be something we're going to be in relationship with. Like I no longer have, a, like we talk about making your alcohol small and irrelevant. Like I don't even have, it's not even small and irrelevant. It's just, I don't have a relationship with alcohol anymore, right? I broke off that relationship, but we can't do the same thing with sugar. There's going to be sugar in everything that we eat. So actually paying attention to how do I feel when I eat is one of the most important ways to highlight 
those very same things we do with alcohol. You know, with alcohol, we say, well, what, how do you feel when you're reaching for that first glass of wine? You know, how do you feel after the first sip of wine, the first glass of wine, the second glass of wine? So we can do the same with food. We can really say, you know, I, I like to have people keep a food journal. It's very simple. It's, it's free and it gives you so much valuable information. And I just did my own podcast on this and it's, you know, it's food, mood, poop. So um, you said, we don't want to talk about my health journey because it's boring, but now we're going to talk about poop, but just for a moment. That's not boring. That's not boring. (laughs) But it's so powerful to say, not, I don't, it's not just what you eat. It's how did I feel? This is some of the most important information that your body is telling you. Just like you said, Mead, you know, I need to get connected with what my body is giving me information all the time. And I need to stop turning it off by getting into a food coma (laughs) and numbing. I mean... There's a reason that we have the same numbing behavior with food when somebody says, well, I sit down and I can't just have one Oreo, I eat a sleeve of Oreos. That's like a numbing behavior. So that is something to pay attention to. How do I feel? Do I feel tired? Do I feel dissatisfied after I eat? Do I have digestive discomfort from that thing that I ate? Am I craving something more? Did I get really depressed? Did I get into, did I get blue? You know, we talk about the impact of alcohol on these neurotransmitters and how it affects our brain. Well, same with food. You know, we produce serotonin in our gut. We use that for our brain. The food brain connection is fascinating. So there's lots of information there. So I just, you know, I think that's also something too that we can really learn more about and empower ourselves with this education. I think about, yeah, so good, Terry. I think about how it's like, no wonder wine took up such a space in my life on the regular, because I think about the collision of that, you know, that time of day, four or five o'clock, you know, where I'm tired, I've been working, maybe something, you know, happened that made me, you know, whatever emotionally happened during the day. I probably haven't had enough water. I've, my nutrition maybe has been, I mean, I'm one of those, like I I say, like I'm, I'm a toddler, like I have to eat little things like all the time to keep my blood sugar up. But sometimes that also means that I'm not eating enough to, you know, sustain me. And so I think about how when I was stuck in the drinking cycle, I would come home from work and, and I was irritable. I was, you know, all the things. And some of that is like obviously perpetuated by the fact that I'm stuck in the drinking cycle and all of that. But how much of it was blood sugar, you know, related and how much of it was my body just like craving that in that survival response way. I've got all of these things making me uncomfortable and on a very basic, you know, survival level, I, I needed nutrition. I needed calories and wine was that quick for a lot of reasons it became that kind of quick hit to get me out of that because I can see now how that time of day being more connected to my body I can see that I also like oh I start craving my little fever tree you know little beverage that I do with LaCroix every afternoon and that's something that like it has sugar in it and it's not a ton I mean it could be worse I'm okay with that. I'm okay with craving that and also drinking that in the afternoon with my handful of nuts or whatever my snack is. But I think about how hard it is when all of those things are kind of colliding at one time. It's like, no wonder we pick up wine. No wonder we're hitting the sleeve of Oreos. No wonder when there's so many things causing discomfort, so to speak, and we're not attuned to what those needs are and keeping up with them ahead of time. So I'm just, I'm just fascinated by that. Well, and it's so powerful to 
do this type of food journal and pay attention to how you feel because everybody needs to tune into their own body to understand how to nourish your body. And you mentioned one of these really important things, this blood sugar regulation and getting hangry or having a dip in blood sugar. And some people are you know, more prone to hypoglycemia with low blood sugar than others. Most of us are just spiking our blood sugar all the time with you know, simple carbs that break down into sugar. But it really is important to say, you know, like, am I somebody who needs to eat more often? And I would say that for most of us, we can get to less meals a day and eat more, you know, nutrient-dense whole foods that work for us and have less of the work of digestion. Because when we're grazing all the time, we are constantly asking our body to do the work of blood sugar regulation and digestion all the time. So this is why people can see some good results in something like time-restricted eating, also known as intermittent fasting, right? Or, you know, the age-old question, do I eat six small meals a day or three large meals a day? And so we've got to pay attention to blood sugar regulation. And so I always start with people just noticing, like, if you're hungry, like I don't do, my style of nutrition is people don't count calories, they don't weigh their food, I don't care how much portions you eat, I want to know how do you feel and did you poop? <laughs> That's yeah. what I want to know because that tells me is the food you're eating the right balance of macronutrients, carbohydrates in the form of fruits and vegetables, proteins and fats for you. And it may be me, to, you know, if you and I were working together, I would probably say, I think you need more protein and fat with your meals. And then I think you will cross over that threshold of regulating your blood sugar more, having more sustained energy after you eat. Protein and fats are like the big logs on the campfire. They take a long time to burn off. Glucose is that quick source of energy. And you know, here's the reality. In our modern diet culture, so many women are stuck in restrictive eating. Like I am fascinated by, if you, if you had a meal with me, you guys would probably say, I can't believe how much Terry eats. I eat a lot of food, but I'm not large. And, and so that is because I eat the food that works for me. And I don't restrict the food that I eat that I know is working for me. You know, counting calories and asking your body to survive on 1,500 calories a day or 1,800. Wow. I don't. Uh, not 1,200? 1,000? Because I was doing that at one point. I, I was trying to stick to 1,000 at one point. When, yeah, and, and your body goes into starvation mode and says, yeah. do not, do not, you know, use these calories at all. Like, you know, we're not burning anything because I don't know when my next meal is coming from. And so I just was on a call on Sunday with another group. I was doing a nutrition presentation and I talked about this idea that, you know, I'm like the anti-nutritionist nutritionist because I'm not going to give you a meal plan and I'm not going to give you, you know, portions. And she literally said, I think I want to cry. Nobody's ever said that to me before. Yeah, because it is. It's so liberating and so freeing for people that have been on diets their whole life, like me. Me. <laughs> I was well, going to say, that all was, women. That all was, women. That was one of the, I always talk about these things that I found freedom from as a result of first finding freedom from alcohol. All of these things that I, I would have just been happy if it was just alcohol. Like I, that would have been enough. But I found freedom from all of these things afterwards. And the biggest freedom is within my relationship with food. I did not have a, I mean, I've always been, yeah, right there in that diet culture for the longest time before I got to that, like huge pain point with drinking, 
Like I pretty much all the calories I was consuming, you know, the majority of the calories were coming from wine. I was really, really thin, not good thin at that point because I wasn't, I wasn't nourishing myself. And so to your point, asking, connecting to our bodies, asking how we feel, it's the same thing we coach around with, you know, alcohol. It's like, start asking, turn to curiosity and start seeing how things are making you feel. And that way you're not, you know, locked into these like prescriptive, rigid, like I was, everything was, I would never have eaten white flour back four years ago ever. And I don't try to eat. I mean, I don't want to eat it a lot, but I pay attention, I pay attention to what I'm eating, what I'm eating and how it makes me feel. And I think that is so huge. So I love what you're saying about like, this is, this is not about following a meal plan or yeah, it's, it's, it's empowering that way. So well done you. I love it. It is so extremely empowering. And I feel like since Mead, you brought it up so beautifully, you know, like if you if you are coming from a place, because I think like a lot of women are where you're struggling with both. I was desperate to hit a certain number on a scale. I was desperate to be like teeny tiny while drinking so much. And so when I stopped drinking, I actually gained weight. And I beat myself up because I was like eating the ice cream. I was stuck in this shame spiral, right? And then I was like, why am I not that girl? Like I stopped drinking. I should have dropped 10 more, 10 more pounds. And I was like, why didn't I get thinner? And then it was the, and I actually wrote about this on my website because I, I just felt like somebody had to say it. Like, it's okay to quit drinking and gain weight. Like, it's okay. Especially if you're going about it, like the way that Terry's teaching us in eating nutrient dense foods, because I think there's this huge stigma that you quit drinking and, you you know, that's a reason to quit drinking even is to lose weight. Like, I hear that a lot, too. And it's just like, let's just try to get healthy, guys, in our minds first. <laughs> yeah, that's right? such a good point. And, you know, it, it really is a misnomer that alcohol and calories is going to equal weight loss. Because, again, let's go back to this fascinating chemistry lab. Our body is not a balanced scale. And so it's not calories in and calories out. It is hormones and blood sugar regulation and sleep and gut health and probiotics and prebiotics and digestion and all of these things are going to impact. So it took about a year for me to get to the weight that I've now been on for my alcohol-free journey. I'm over seven, seven plus years now, seven years, some months. And so it took a year for me to actually get to, I lost some weight and I was overhauling my diet at the time because I was in nutrition school, but I noticed that it wasn't like I instantly lost weight. And now you might be some of a person that that does happen because you are maybe not craving certain foods when you're not drinking. Uh, some people, you know, eat more junk food when they're drinking or they eat hangover food. And so changing that dynamic might result in some weight loss. But you know what's so fascinating? I listened to a podcast a couple of years ago and they were talking about BMI, body mass index, right? That's just a made up marker that is arbitrary. Like there's no science behind it. And so it's like, wait, who, someone just put this arbitrary number out there and now we're all trying to not be obese. And, and it's such a disempowering philosophy when it comes to how do we love our body? How do we be in relationship with our body? How do we honor this amazing chemistry lab? And one of the things we do around alcohol is, you know, I think in the methodology that we all learned from this naked mind is we can write a letter to our body saying, thank you. 
Thank you for showing up even when I was throwing up. Thank you for not developing, you know, a life-threatening disease. And some people do, but the body can, is amazing at repairing, you know? And so we also need to think about it when we think about on a daily basis, like, thank you for my legs walking me across the room. Thank you for my arms that hug my grandchildren. Thank you for, you know, my nose that can smell my new puppy and that new puppy smell, you know, and we forget sometimes and we get into a battle with the very thing that is sustaining us. And it's, yeah, yeah it's challenging. That's what I, I was, so good. I was just thinking Sorry. when you said, yeah, no, no. I was just thinking when you said BMI and the number and all of that, it's like, when we get into calorie counting and you know the number on the scale, all of that data appeals to our like you know our left brain that's all into the like where's the problem? Let me solve. And so we're actually the the things that we're using to we think to help us get out of you know that are like with these numbers you know and and being in this certain range or whatever is really that thing that's also keeping us stuck in that because as long as we're kind of like wrapped in those numbers, we're not necessarily connected to the body's wisdom and what the body is telling us. It's so fascinating to me to think about it from, you know, that kind of zoomed out lens and see where, well, no wonder, no wonder it's so hard when, and no wonder diets don't work because we're, we're perpetuating the problem, not to mention the shame and blame that we all know keeps us from learning anyway, keeps us from being in that, you know, open space. So gosh, I just, I love this conversation so much. It's like, yeah, we've diverted a little bit from sugar, <laughs> but well, I will we say, knew it was going to happen. We knew that was going to happen. <laughs> but I will say, you know, a couple of takeaways, things that we can do in the moment that I think are really helpful is so when you find yourself wanting to eat something and you maybe don't, you're not hungry. I want you to think about starting with a glass of water. I want you to just have a glass of water and then allow your brain because our brain isn't functioning properly when it's dehydrated. And so allow your brain to come back online and then ask, oh, enough, you know, maybe just the water is enough. Walk outside, take three deep breaths, and then you can go back to the kitchen and say, oh yeah, I do want a little food. And then, you know, one of the things that's so powerful, you probably have all coached people who are drinking alcohol and they live alone and you say, why is there alcohol in the house? <laughs> and so, you know, same thing happens with food. If you want to eat good food, keep good food in the house. So just that barrier of the, we do the things that are convenient and we don't do the things that are inconvenient. So if you have to drive to the store to get the bag of hot flaming Cheetos <laughs> or gummy bears, as Annie Grace talks about, then that's a barrier where your brain could come online and say, oh, it's not really worth it. I could have a green apple and that would be delicious. Or I could take a walk and I probably don't need to go get gummy bears. So thinking about setting yourself up for success comes to this strategy of convenience and inconvenience. And just, you know, challenge yourself. And you can always say, if I want the ice cream, I could drive to the ice cream store later, just like we can say that with alcohol. And so putting that barrier so that we are not just in that instant gratification, that easy button, that default mode, we have to choose. And that brings our brain back online. I love that as like our little tiny new action, our Tina that we like to leave folks with as something to do. And I, it makes me curious. I don't know if you can speak to this real quick, Terry, but I've heard that, you know, sometimes that when we are dehydrated, it shows up like hunger. So we think we're hungry, but we're really dehydrated. Is that, can you speak to that at all and how that? Yeah, well, we're, you know, again, it, most of it goes back to the brain. So our brain shrinks when we're, when it's dehydrated, you know, the, the, 
I don't know what to say, vessels in the brain shrink. And so we aren't getting as much blood flow to the prefrontal cortex, our thinking part of the brain. So we're operating more in the lizard part of the brain, which is very reactionary. And so having water allows us to suddenly be like, oh, and speaking of water, I always, here's my little Tina that I like to give everybody. So this could hopefully help with your listeners too, is we are often depleted in these micro minerals because we used to get a lot of the minerals from our food based on the soil that it was grown in. So now we know soil is not as rich in minerals as it used to be. And then we also don't necessarily eat the right foods that are nutrient dense. And so we find ourselves depleted in these small minerals and these can create cravings. So things like manganese, selenium, chromium, these tiny trace minerals. So a simple little action that we can do is you can take your drinking water and add a pinch of, like I have a 20 ounce drinking tumbler here, and I will add a pinch or two of Himalayan salt, and that will give me over 90 trace minerals. Wow. And so you are now getting some of the where areas where your body was depleted, and you're getting some of those nutrients that is going to stave off some of those cravings. And so so that's just a really simple thing to do that can, and don't make it salty so you don't want to drink it. Like you shouldn't really taste the salt, like maybe a little bit, but you're just putting a pinch or so. And you can start doing this in like half of the water that you drink during the day, all of the water. And I've had people just like be like blown away at how transformative this simple action is because their body was craving something. And then they're like, oh, I found myself eating a bag of potato chips. And now that I have a little tiny bit of salt in my water, and maybe I'm getting something that I needed in the form of an actual nutrient, I don't have the same craving. Is that the same reason Himalayan salt is good for headaches? Probably. If you're you're depleted in that, yeah. Heard that, but I, you know, the other thing that if you are, having a headache, think hydration. That is yeah. the number one cause of headaches is dehydration. But if you put the salt in it, hey, can't hurt. <laughs> yeah, well, I was like, there's my Tina for the week is I'm gonna add a little Himalayan pink salt. Is it, does it have to be Yeah, pink? and I, I actually pick up salt wherever I go in the world because different, like when I was in Hawaii, I picked up black volcanic ash salt, you know? And so just thinking of different mineral profiles that might be in these little salts. And so experiment and explore. You know, we have our, at least in America, we have our, our iodized salt, the Morton salt, the blue, you know, container. And we don't need, that's not the type of salt I'm talking about because what it's iodized is stripped of those trace minerals. So just, this is a really simple way to just help rebalance your body, particularly when you're coming back from something like letting go of alcohol and your system is catching up. Love. I have one last question and it kind of stemmed from the the salt conversation. So do you recommend any supplements like to your, to your clients when they're in the beginning of the journey or do you really focus on just the nutrient dense food or can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah. Great question. So, you know, I actually, again, kind of the anti-nutritionist, nutritionist, one of the reasons I don't recommend a lot of supplements and I really don't recommend supplements at all in the beginning. I want your body to start doing the repair around whole food because your body recognizes whole food. And if we think about it, we've had some impact with our liver. We've overtaxed our liver when we've been drinking due to processing the toxins and alcohol. And 
then also we're doing the work of digestion, you know, when digestion gets disrupted from alcohol drinking. So we want to pay attention to the liver and what happens when we have supplements is the liver has to break down those supplements. And so it has to go through a phase one or phase two detoxification pathway. And so we're now putting additional burden on the liver when we want to be giving the liver a break. So starting with whole food is really a good way to get up to the baseline that we can get to. And, and the other reason I like to do it is almost from like a mental mindset component, because if you have a symptom and you go to a Western medicine doctor, you're going to get a prescription. And oftentimes people will get a prescription and that will solve the symptom and they don't do the deeper work of the root cause around food or digestion and or food intolerances. And so when we go to a naturopath or a nutritionist and we just get a supplement, again, it's like that quick fix. It's like, oh, I feel better. but we haven't fixed the cause. And so functional nutrition is really about the root cause. So it all comes back to digestion and your body knows what to do with whole food. It knows this is a food. Whereas supplements, you know, mm, uh, one thing I do often share is there's a couple of really quick things that are outside of what I consider like traditional supplements. So I will share those. One is with to help with sleep, and to help with constipation is magnesium. And so the best way to get magnesium is through Epsom salt. Now, I shouldn't say the best way. One of the ways, one of my favorite ways is to have Epsom salt baths or foot soaks. Because if you think about it, your skin is one of the largest organs in your body and it is gonna uptake that without it having to go through the process of the detoxification pathway. So you're just going to get the benefits of that magnesium, which we're mostly depleted in, and it's gonna help relax muscles, which helps with constipation and sleep. A lot of people have issues with sleeping in the beginning of their alcohol-free journey. So using Epsom salts, either a full bath or just a foot soak is really helpful. And then gut health, we wanna eat fermented foods, and you can use apple cider vinegar as a digestive aid. So that's not really a supplement either, but when we're working on getting our digestion back into good shape, we've maybe been neglecting our diet, we've been eating more junk food or processed foods when we were over drinking, we've been focusing on the drinking, now we're eating more sugar, maybe our gut needs a little bit of reset. So we can use apple cider vinegar as a digestive enzyme. So diluting apple cider vinegar in water, about a half a teaspoon and about eight ounces of water and eating, drinking that 15 minutes before a meal can help with digestion. So those are not, those are sort of outside of the supplement and other than that, just whole food. Love, Love that. My this gosh. Is so good. I was like frantically taking to... notes here on my remarkable. It's so good. Same. I'm going to have to go back and listen again and like I... transcribe <laughs> it because there's so Well, the good news is, is so it's rich. recorded. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. Terry, thank, thank you, you so much. Yeah, thank you. We so appreciate you. Yeah, well, and it's so much fun to talk about this because there is a lot of overlap and it is a common journey. And the other thing that we didn't really address, I'll just say as a way to wrap this up, is that if you have let go of alcohol and you're looking around and saying, now want what? You know, doing a deep dive into your nutrition and just start with that very simple food journal. 
let yourself go there and say, how much better can I feel? Yes. And that is often the next step that people want to work on. And it is a natural next step because I don't know about the two of you, but when I started discovering the beauty of living a life without alcohol, I now want to live the healthiest, longest life I can. It's so much fun. So good. Yeah. It's not just removing the things that don't serve me. It's what are the things that naturally resourced I can use to nourish myself in a way that allows me to continue showing up the way I want to show up. I mean, it's all, all part of that. Who knew? Who knew? Who knew? Terry, tell the people where to find you. Yeah, so my business is The Sober Nutritionist. Big surprise, right? And I have the SoberNutritionist.com website. I am Terry.TheSoberNutritionist on Instagram. I have my own podcast called The Sober Edge. And I work with people around nutrition. I work in alcohol-free coaching. And I also have my brand new signature program called The Self Experience, which is for women after alcohol. So that's a little bit... Which word on the street is fantastic. I know people are participating (laughs) and they love it. So well done you. Thank you so much for your wisdom, your generosity and coming and sharing with us. And yeah, just so grateful for you as a friend and a colleague. And yeah, love you, Terry. Oh, thank you. Thank you both for the opportunity. And as you can already tell, I could talk about nutrition all day long. (laughs) Thanks, Terry. Love you. Thank you so much for joining us again this week. You can find all of our episodes at butjesusdrankwine.com and make sure you follow us over on the gram at Love Life Sober with Christy and Mead at I'm Not Sober, I'm Free. To learn more about what we do, you can visit our websites at meadhollandshirley.com and lovelifesober.com. Take a screenshot of this podcast and share it with a friend or two. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't have to worry about missing a single episode. And if you love what we're doing, please leave us a review on Apple or Spotify. This helps more women who are feeling stuck and alone in the overdrinking cycle to find hope and encouragement. Thanks, ladies. We so appreciate you. We'll see you next week.